Welcome to episode 56 of Reading with Rory, the podcast where three friends discuss the 300 plus books on the Rory Gilmore reading list. I'm today's host, Erin. I'm Sarah. And I'm Liz. Um, so today we are discussing the complete stories of Dorothy Parker and also kind of combining this with the portable Dorothy Parker because they're kind of the same thing. Not really, and we'll talk about that in a second, but they're close enough that we're just going to combine these two from the list. Um, also note that this marks the end of our complete works section. So after this, we will be back to regular books, which I have kind of mixed feelings about. I've enjoyed the complete works section, but I'm also kind of ready for just like a regular novel. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I appreciate short stories and poetry. So it's fun to have all that because that's part of the complete works a lot. But um, a novel. I'm ready. Bring it yeah. on. But yeah, before we do, let's let's talk about Dorothy Parker. That's right. So Dorothy Parker was a uh, Gilmore Girls fave, um, kind of a um, spiritual inspiration, so to speak, for Amy Sherman Palladino, who actually named her production company Dorothy Parker Drink Care Productions. So we've got some serious Dorothy Parker <laughs> vibes and Gilmore Girls going on. They reference um, her a lot, don't they? I feel like they do. Well, I think they probably reference a lot of her quotes a lot but um as far as the actual books go we've only caught three references between the complete stories of dorothy parker and the portable dorothy parker they uh which show up in season one episode nine season six episode 16 and then the spring episode from a year in the life so those are kind of the three places where the actual um works show up but she is very likely quoted otherwise throughout the show so um Okay, before we dive headfirst into the world of Dorothy, world and wit of Dorothy Parker, however, let's make sure that we are well-fed and full of energy, because I feel like we should have energy to match the wit of Dorothy Parker. <laughs> so we've got to keep up. I know, right? we got to keep up. So what are we eating today, ladies? Liz, how about you? Well, I mean, the energy is going to come from the caffeine, from my Diet Coke, of course, but um, I've been eating uh, an English muffin with uh, Nutella and some cream cheese on it, and it's pretty good, actually. It's a good combination. An English muffin with Nutella and cream cheese? Yeah. I've never even considered that combination It's a before. recipe I just made up with what's in my cupboard, and it was good. <laughs> I was happy about it. <laughs> I might make it again. <laughs> All right. That sounds great. Um, Sarah, I mean, it's no cruffin or fancy stuff from the past. But yeah, right, right. <laughs> the Diet Coke's good, too. <laughs> A Diet Coke and an English muffin with cream cheese and Nutella. That is a breakfast of champions right there. <laughs> it's really good. Um, Sarah, what about you? Um, well, I'm just having, similarly to Liz, uh, uh, some toast, a little in the toast family, but I'm just doing some straightforward, this is like a standard breakfast for me, is like a whole wheat toast with peanut butter and an apple. So it's... Um, I feel like it's pretty healthy, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna fill me up for this, for this combo. Okay, well, that sounds great. And it is great. a little bit healthier, maybe, than oh, other so things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So judgy. <laughs> I, I, I'm not, I didn't say I'm eating the healthiest breakfast. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, mine's kind of a, a combination between the two. So I am eating a chocolate donut with chocolate covered sprinkles or with chocolate sprinkles <laughs> from chocolate Van covered Cross. Sprinkles? that's a fancy sprinkle <laughs> no yeah no no just chocolate sprinkles um chocolate donut chocolate icing chocolate sprinkles it's a full chocolate, it's a triple chocolate, threat chocolate. yeah mm -hmm. and then but i'm also eating a peach so yeah. <laughs> i feel like 
maybe that kind of balances it out, even though they're both just different kinds of sugar. Sure, yeah. But um, that sounds pretty delicious, too. You said your donut was from Banbury? Banbury Cross, Salt Lake City um, fave. Yeah. That's right. I like Banbury. Um, it's not my favorite Salt Lake donut, but it is so good. I heard a statistic, and I could be kind of wrong on this, so don't quote me on this anywhere, but I heard a statistic that they supply, like, a significant portion of the donuts in because they'll they'll supply it for like catering and other kinds of things and so they actually have like a really really significant business in at least like the greater utah area maybe even extending into the region a little bit well there you go good for them they are definitely um big donut face but my i prefer a fresh donut in delhi that's my uh-huh. thing. Yeah. Fresh donut in Delhi? Mm-hmm. It's on 27th South and State. It's so good. Never even heard of that one. Gotta check it out. It's a little hole-in-the-wall place, and it's so good. <laughs> it's, like, oh. life-changing. Yep. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll have to check that out. Um, well, Banbury Cross has these applesauce donuts that are so good. And they're, I think they sell out of them pretty fast. Um, regularly but if you ever have a chance to go in and get one they don't have them kind of in like the main they're kind of like down hidden in a corner of the counter um but if you ever go in there try and get an applesauce donut they're pretty darn good yummy that sounds like really good for fall i know right yeah i'm getting really excited for all the fall foods all the apple stuff and pumpkin apple and pumpkin (laughs) bring on that pumpkin spice we're basic (laughs) um okay well that's fun. So let's get back to Dorothy Parker. But first, we're going to do a quick side step um, segue to yeah, our new segment. New yeah, segment. Yeah, don't forget. Take, take that, that, Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do it. Um, okay, so today's copy. So I'm actually using a copy of the portable Dorothy Parker um, for this. And my copy of the portable Dorothy Parker comes from a little bookstore called Tim's Used Books, which is in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Provincetown is like at the end of Cape Cod. So if you go down onto Cape Cod and, you know, it has, it's the arm that kind of curves back up. If you go all the way back to the northern tip, like at the very tip, that's where Provincetown is located. And it's this uh, artsy little town, um, has a pretty big uh, LGBTQ community there. Like that's kind of a big thing that they're known for. And um, just all these cute little shops. And so I went there with my family when they were out visiting me in Boston one week. And we found this cute little bookstore, Tim's Used Books. And that is where I got my copy of the portable Dorothy Parker. Oh, it sounds charming. I would love to check that place out. It is charming. You know, fun fact, resort towns are actually a really great place to find uh, independent bookstores, like used bookstores, because yeah. you get all these people who go on vacation and then don't they want to pack their books, books and they don't want to pack <clears throat> their books. Yeah. So you get this, like some of the best and the hardest books I've uh, found, hardest ones to find, I've found in uh, resort towns. Because that's, it's more than just kind of your average, you know, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn or 1984, which you can find almost everywhere. Yeah. So. Well, that's fun. I love it. That sounds great. Yeah. Check out Provincetown. Yeah. So go check out Provincetown and Tim's Used Books at some point. Um, Okay. So let's talk about Dorothy Parker. Now, she had a really um, kind of interesting, fascinating life, which I think kind of matches um, well, I mean, she's known for her wit, right? So she's probably going to be an interesting character because she had a very biting sense of 
um, sarcasm and humor and, you know, was very sardonic in a lot of her writing. And uh, it makes sense that her personality would match that. So here's a little bit about her background. Uh, she was a Rothschild. So she was born Dorothy Rothschild. Um, in New, she was born in New Jersey on the Jersey Shore on August 22nd, 1893. But she grew up in New York City. Um, and like I said, it's pre-apparent. She had a sharp wit right from the get-go. Her mother died just before she turned five. And apparently she didn't like the woman that her father remarried a couple years later. So instead of calling her stepmother or Eleanor, which is her name, she called her the housekeeper. Oh, no. <laughs> Which I thought was really kind of funny. Um, <laughs> she also joked once. So she went, she was half Jewish. Her father was uh, Jewish, I think, and her mother was Protestant or her step, and her stepmother was Protestant or something like that. But um, anyway, but she went to this Catholic elementary school in New York City. And she joked once that she was asked to leave her, her elementary school because she described the Immaculate Conception as spontaneous combustion. <laughs> 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 shock the nuns yeah so uh, again from a very early age right like she clearly has no filter and um i love it yeah <clears throat> so in 1914 she sold her first poem to vanity fair and then was later hired as an editorial assistant at vogue and then after two years at vogue she went back to vanity fair as a staff writer um, she started getting national attention through something called the Algonquin Roundtable. And so this was a group of literary friends who met at the Algonquin Hotel in New York. They and talk about the Algonquin a lot on Gilmore Girls. They really do. Yep. I was yeah. like, <laughs> very aspirational for yep. our budding writers in that yes. show. But yes. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and this is where it comes from. So she was a founding member of the Algonquin Roundtable, along with um, her, what who later became kind of her best friend, Robert Benchley. And then there were others involved in that, Robert E. Sherwood, Franklin Pierce Adams, and uh, Alexander Wolcott, among others. So it kind of was, you know, one of the, it was one of those literary groups people kind of moved through. And um, anyway, the, but this roundtable started publishing Parker's lunchtime remarks and her short verses in, uh, I think Alexander Wolcott had a column or something like that. And so they would publish them in, in, in the column. And that's how she started to gain national notoriety as a quote-unquote wit. Um, so that's where some of this is coming from. She would from. have, like, started out as, like, a Twitter person. Oh, she then, totally, like, <laughs> oh, yeah. She would have been, like, you know, like, she would have given her Twitter, her, fatigue around her, her tweets, money, right? Her, yeah, her, yeah, her vicious tweets would have gained her notoriety and gotten her a book deal or something. Absolutely. Really, like, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, but she, so she got a lot of attention for that, but she also got a lot of criticism because, again, kind of no filter on this. Like, she just kind of said whatever was on her mind. So she actually was let go from Vanity Fair because she uh, some of the stuff she wrote offended the magazine's producers. Um, the New York Times often called her poems, quote-unquote, flapper verse, which I thought was kind of funny. And, also kind um, of sexist. What? <laughs> I said also kind of sexist, but that's okay. Right, right. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, but she would say things like, you know, when, when she was told that, uh, U.S. President Calvin Coolidge had died, she said, well, how can they tell? Yeah, I've heard uh, that one before. <laughs> you know, that's a, a pretty famous one. And then there's, like, she went to see a Katherine Hepburn movie or something like that, and she said, I experienced the full range of emotions from A to B. And she just <laughs> was, you know, anyway... Um, the 1920s were kind of her most successful era, kind of spilling into the 30s a little bit. So during the 20s, she published approximately 300 poems and free verses in various magazines between Vogue, Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, etc. She actually ended up on the um, 
kind of the editorial board when the New Yorker was founded as a way the person who founded it was a friend of hers and to appease his investors he brought in outside editors to help kind of give it some clout and she was one of those who came in on that editorial board um and then she (laughs) wrote a lot for the New Yorker throughout her career her first volume of poetry which was published in 1926 sold 47,000 copies Um, She also collaborated with playwright Elmer Rice to create Close Harmony, which ran on Broadway in December of 1924. The play was well-received in out-of-town reviews and in New York, but it closed after a run of just 24 performances, so it wasn't um, on Broadway for very long. It later became successful as a touring production under the title The Lady Next Door. Um, some of her most popular work was published in the New Yorker in the form of, uh, book reviews. She wrote a lot of book reviews and it, it is pretty funny to read through some of her book reviews. Like she's not, she doesn't, she didn't hold, hold back. back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, she no. doesn't hold back <laughs> at all, which, uh, again, you know, got her a lot of attention, but also she had kind of a pattern of kind of burning bridges with people and sometimes she would later reconcile with them sometimes she wouldn't even the Algonquin Roundtable she ended up saying a lot of um, not great things about it later in her career and kind of alienated a lot of the members of that of that group and some of them she you know later reconciled with but yeah she she was kind of known for doing that um, do you feel like that the episode where Rory is a uh, like reviewing that ballet and she's really mean and like biting about the ballerina and just like oh, harsh yeah. about it like to think it's a little nod to this because i kind of do okay yeah i, definitely I can see, see that, that. Mm-hmm. yeah um anyway but uh yeah so her reviews kind of appeared semi-regularly between 1927 and 1933 they were widely read and then she published them all in a collection under the name the constant reader in 1970 which was also a column that she had i think in the new yorker Um, As far as, like, her personal life goes, in 1917, she married Edwin Pond Parker II, but they later divorced in 1928. And then in 1934, she remarried a man named Alan Campbell, who was an actor. And the two of them moved to Hollywood and began writing for Paramount Pictures, working on more than 15 films together before her political activism got her blacklisted in Hollywood, which is kind of interesting. (laughs) She was nominated for two Academy Awards during this time. One was for best screenplay for the 1937 film A Star is Born, which is the film that Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper remade not too long ago. Well, they remade yeah. the Well, remake. they remade a remake. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's been like the third remake. But the fourth. Well, oh, was it the fourth? I think it might uh-huh. have been the fourth. Yeah. Because yeah. also, remember on Gilmore Girls when Lorelai watches all three. All three versions of A Star is Born uh, at that point, yeah. <laughs> and it's like her night of wallowing and then yeah. Luke comes back. Another, and it's, it's another. It's great. It's a great episode. But, that, but, the, but yeah, that scene with Judy Garland, that's not the, that's not the Dorothy Parker version. Hers was mm-hmm. the earlier version. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, Dorothy Parker's is the original. Yeah. For, like she's the one who, she wrote or at least co-wrote the screenplay for it. So she got an, an Academy Award nomination for that. And then she other she also got an Academy Award nomination for Best Screenplay for a movie called Smash Up, The Story of a Woman. And um, anyway, so she had a, a kind of an interesting career in Hollywood, too. She worked on the screenplay for the 1942 Alfred Hitchcock film Saboteur, and, among others. So, um, But then she was blacklisted, right? But like then she, she was blacklisted. Yeah, so we'll get into that. Um, uh-huh here in a second when we talk about her activism but one thing i wanted to say about the portable dorothy parker since we're talking about kind of the two works here so the portable dorothy parker comes out of a series called um it, it was a 
series of portable collections that were prepared for servicemen who were stationed overseas during World War II. Oh, and it's basically cool. just an anthology of various kinds of works, and I think it it spanned a lot of different authors. But what's interesting is that the portable Dorothy Parker is one of three portable series that has remained in continuous print. Um, the others, I think, being Shakespeare and the Bible. So <laughs> wow, <laughs> yeah. So I think so. Some that's really company. interesting, right? Yeah, yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, and the portable Dorothy Parker has an introduction by Somerset, um, Somerset mom. The original one did. Yeah. Yeah. Somerset mom. Yeah. Um, yeah, the original one did. So anyway, kind of an interesting, you know, and, and again, that's kind of why we're combining these because it, the portable Dorothy Parker is just an anthology of her, of yeah, her. That's the one that works. I have. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. whereas the stories are obviously just her stories, the portable Dorothy Parker talks, takes in her reviews and yeah. her, and her like, poems, all, and all kinds of different essays. writings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She so the portable, very prolific. yeah, it's more of an anthology than the complete stories is. Anyway, okay, so about her activism. Um, so during the 1930s and 1940s, she became an increasingly vocal advocate of civil, civil liberties and civil rights and uh, was a frequent quit- critic of authority figures, which is not terribly surprising. But what's interesting is that she ended up getting involved in a lot of stuff that was kind of connected to the Communist Party. And uh, Probably so would have gotten her blacklisted, I'd imagine, right? Well, that yeah, that is what got her blacklisted. So she helped to found this uh, group called the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League in 1936, which the FBI suspected of being a Communist Party front. Huh. And uh, what's interesting is that this Hollywood Anti-Nazi League, uh, the membership for it eventually grew to like 4,000 people. And it was very wealthy members who were able to contribute as much to Communist Party funds as the whole American working class, um, which is pretty interesting. Even though they may or may not have actually been intending to contribute to the Communist Party clause, but, uh, or Communist Party cause. Anyway, but because of that, she kind of got listed as a communist by this publication, Red Channels, in 1950. And this is around the time when Joseph McCarthy's getting big and his whole anti-communism thing is going crazy. And uh, so she ended up getting blacklisted from Hollywood as a result of her association with these groups. So that's kind of how that kind of brought an end to her Hollywood career. Her final screenplay was a movie called The Fan, which was a 1949 adaptation of Oscar Wilde's Lady Windermere's Fan. Um, directed by Otto uh, Preminger. Preminger, I love Otto mm-hmm. Preminger. Yeah, so that's kind of uh, that's kind of her life. Now, there's before we kind of move into these stories, there's a fascinating story behind her death that I just want to take a minute and talk about. Um, okay, I know, and and, and, and covering it from like womb to tomb. I love it. <laughs> we, we really are. And what's interesting is that. This like this episode is perfectly timed because some of the stuff that happens as with her like burial and post burial happened within the last like two weeks. So there's some um, this is a very relevant thing to be discussing right now. So Dorothy Parker died on June 7th, 1967. And uh, and there's so again, she wrote a lot for The New Yorker, right? was very involved. And um, I'm just, there's an article in the New Yorker that was published September 5th, like, or I'm sorry, September 4th, like days ago. Um, and it's called The Improbable Journey of Dorothy Parker's Ashes. So I want to give, I want to read a little bit of this article because it's just so fascinating to, uh, to um, listen to this. Okay, so 
Dorothy Parker dies in 1967 of a heart attack. She's found by her chambermaid um, and is basically dead. So Dorothy Parker had named her friend, her her second husband, Alan Campbell, had already passed away from a drug overdose. And so she had left her entire estate. Well, she had named her friend Lillian Hellman, who we know from the Children's Hour. Yeah, the they had a thing. Okay, okay. Yep, so they were buddies. So she had named Lillian Hellman her as the executrix of her estate. However, she left her entire estate to Martin Luther King Jr., even though she had never met Martin Luther King Jr., and he had no idea who she was. <laughs> um, anyway, so when Lillian Hellman finds out that she had not been left any money, she was furious. And she swore that Parker must have been drunk when she wrote the will. Parker did drink a lot, so that's yeah, that not, kind of... not terribly out of you know the question. So out of spite, Hellman orders all of Parker's effects to be thrown away, including her papers, books, clothes, and her keepsakes. She also disobeyed Parker's wishes for a quiet cremation and organized a public memorial at a funeral home on the Upper East Side. She laid her body out in a size three beaded gold caftan given to her by Gloria Vanderbilt, (laughs) even though Dorothy Parker just wanted to be cremated. Um, And then then Hellman delivers a eulogy for a packed house and a violinist is playing Bach. Anyway, just like completely so don't opposite. Don't make Lillian Hellman your so executrix petty. I love or whatever. It. Right? <laughs> don't yeah, don't name Lillian Hellman your executrix. So, because she was clearly not doing her job, a court eventually stripped her of control over over the estate, which uh, you know, uh, makes sense. Anyway, but later that week, so Martin Luther King is interrupted at a restaurant in Atlanta and told that he has just inherited Dorothy Parker's estate. He's never heard of her, so he's super baffled by this. But he explained to his fellow dining companions and fellow activists from the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He said, quote, this verifies what I said that the Lord shall provide. <laughs> and, uh, and then Parker had also specified in her will that if something should happen to Martin Luther King, her estate should go to the NAACP. Well, 10 months later, Martin Luther King is assassinated. And so the NAACP becomes the owner of Dorothy Parker's assets and her work. And to this day, they still approve all uses of Dorothy Parker's writing. Interesting. Yeah, so it no one knows how much money they've actually made from licensing fees and royalties, but it's probably not an insignificant amount. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's probably really gone a long way to help. That's yeah. awesome. That's yeah. so cool. But they gave them back. Didn't they, so, so do they still have them? Well, okay, so here here we go with the rest of the story. Okay, so, um, so I'm just going to read a little bit from the article here. It says, Parker was cremated at Ferncliff Crematory in Westchester County. No one ever came to collect the ashes, and they sat on a shelf for years. Storage mm-hmm. fees were never paid. And part of this is because she never specified what should happen to her remains. She just wanted to be cremated, but she never specified where she should be buried or who should have authority to decide that, etc. So uh, she gets cremated, and she just sits on this shelf for years because no one knows what to do with her ashes. The storage fees were never paid, so in 1973, after many unreturned phone calls, a frustrated clerk at Ferncliff sent the urn to the address listed on Parker's paperwork, which had once belonged to the office of Parker's lawyer, Oscar Bernstein. By this time, Bernstein had retired, and his partner, Paul O'Dwyer, had taken over the practice. O'Dwyer had barely interacted with Parker and had no idea what to do with the delivery, so he stuffed the urn into a filing cabinet attached to his desk and forgot about it. Then in the early 1980s, so this is like 15 years after she's passed away, the author and actor Malachi McCourt 
visits O'Dwyer's office and began telling a story about meeting Parker at a Hollywood party in 1961 without recognizing her. He says she was brightly dressed, her hair not white, blondish, warm, and friendly, and somewhat amused by my attention, McCourt told me. And I said, you're sure now that you don't want to spend the night with me? And she said, young man, you might think you're flattering me, but you're mistaken. <laughs> and uh, so O'Dwyer asks McCourt if he wants to see Dorothy Parker again. And he said, well, yeah, but I think she's dead. And so O'Dwyer, he said, O'Dwyer gave me a look and went to his desk and pulled out an urn from a metal filing cabinet in his bottom drawer. It was not large, maybe the size of a small flower vase. It was only about 10 inches, I think. Very small. And he said, so here she is again. And I said, oh, my God, how are you, Dorothy? And uh, anyway, <laughs> and the story keeps going. What? Yeah, <laughs> we're still going. So 1988. O'Dwyer, who's then 81, decides he needs to do something about Dorothy Parker's ashes before he passes away and they get lost forever. So he calls Liz Smith, a gossip columnist for the Daily News, who had been a friend of Dorothy Parker's, and asks for advice. So Liz Smith mentions Parker's plight in her column and soon received more than 70 letters in response. So O'Dwyer holds a cocktail party of 30 Parker devotees at the Algonquin Hotel. He explains to the guests that the instructions in Parker's will were unclear about where her remains should go, and he asks them for suggestions. And the ideas were all over the place. So Liz Smith wanted the urn in a lighted vitrine in the Algonquin, but the manager, Edward Pitt, declined to take it, saying it made him squeamish. An aviation company representative proposed sprinkling the ashes out of an airplane over the Hudson. An artist said that he had developed a way to mix the ashes with oil and could paint Parker so she could live on as a portrait in perpetuity. Um, a guest proposed Ew. that she be encased in bar <laughs> to honor her love of drinking. Um, this could be like a movie. I know. I know. Uh-huh. It's so great. Uh, it's, and then it says one inebriated brainstormer wanted to wrap the ashes in paper like cocaine and divvy them up among the crowd, which is weird. Mm-hmm. Um, but O'Dwyer didn't like any of these suggestions. He thought that they were macabre and inappropriate. So he and he confessed at the time, said, I have no idea what we, what we will decide. So the conundrum soon became headline news in papers as far away as Australia. The critic Joseph McClellan of the Washington Post set it to a 13 stanza poem, including, uh, and it's, it says, Liz Smith, the columnist, has told a story grim and dark about a girl named Parker who can't find a place to park. <laughs> I mean, this is so great. So anyway, uh, Benjamin Hooks, who was the then director of the NAACP, attended this Algonquin meeting. And the NAACP had recently moved his headquarters from New York to Baltimore. So he offered that Dorothy Parker could be sent to to Baltimore to the NAACP headquarters. Diehard New Yorkers did not like that idea of Parker leaving the city. But O'Dwyer liked the idea. So they ended up building a memorial at Howard University in a grassy area next to the parking lot behind the NAACP offices and called it the Dorothy Parker Memorial Gardens. The site had four concentric circles of brown bricks to evoke the Algonquin Round Table, and it was surrounded by rhododendrons. Parker's ashes were interred there in October 1988. And uh, Hooks, the director of the NAACP, said the idea of a white woman leaving her entire estate, all she had to the black cause, was unparalleled. I can imagine the gesture was greeted with a raised eyebrow by many whites. Um, anyway, so over time, the site kind of fell into disrepair, and it was largely forgotten, partly because it was just stuck behind the suburban office building. And um, it's like forgot about her ashes. Yeah, like people just kind of forgot about her ashes yeah, and just okay. kind of stopped taking care of it. 
And uh, anyway, so in 2006, Kevin Fitzpatrick, who's a professional tour guide, found out that the NAACP was considering moving its headquarters to Washington, D.C. So Fitzpatrick is an avid Dorothy Parker fan. He wrote a guidebook called A Journey into Dorothy Parker's New York. And he founded the Dorothy Parker Society and hosts a yearly event at the Algonquin called Parker Fest, which is so, so great. Uh, <laughs> so he's going to find her ashes. <laughs> so he, yeah. So anyway, so Good. he, um, All right. <laughs> yeah, so he's going to figure this out. Anyway, so the, um, he said, there's this thing with the round table people, disgracefully very few have graves. So he talks about how Robert Benchley, who was Parker's best friend, was, his urn was sent to his family, just empty. And then Alexander Wolcott, his ashes were meant to be sent to his alma mater, Hamilton College, but were instead sent to just Hamilton, New York. So I have no idea where they are in Hamilton, New York. And uh, he said, you know, Judy Garland got moved. Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald got moved. He said, look what happened to Truman Capote. After a dispute, the writer's ashes were divided between his partner and a friend, and some of his remains were later sold at auction. Uh, he said you could write a book about um, Truman Capote's afterlife. And I feel like you could write a book about Dorothy Parker's afterlife. Yeah, no, this is a journey. Right? I... Yeah, this is a journey. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, so Fitzpatrick had been in touch with Parker's relatives, three grand nieces who live in central New York. They're still alive. <clears throat> and um, they had lost touch with their Aunt Dot, as they called her, after she and their uncle had an argument over a family funeral. They didn't even realize that she was famous even though their mother kept her books in the family's home library. Um, And so one of the nieces says, I remember we heard about her death when we were getting in the car. It was on the radio and it was on the nightly news too. Headline news in the New York Times. And so these, but these grandnieces had no idea what had happened to her remains. So they were shocked to hear about where they had ended up. And uh, one of them said, our family never knew that her ashes were in a drawer. And uh, so they wanted her brought back to Woodlawn Cemetery, which is in the Bronx, where her parents and grandparents were buried. And um, anyway, and they found out that Dorothy Parker's father had purchased a plot with six places and two empty ones had been passed to Parker herself and were still empty at at the time. So um, anyway, so Fitzpatrick, this Dorothy Parker fan, works on a proposal for her move. So he had to get he had to collect signed letters from family members and court documents, all sorts of things. And um, so at the beginning of 2020, 14 years later, they got permission to move the ashes. This is why this is so fascinating. So in August, this August, as in one month ago, yeah, um, Fitzpatrick met the writer of this New York, York, New Yorker article at Penn Station wearing a mask and carrying a 10 by 14 inch pinewood box, which he had built to uh, carry the urn. So they travel down to Baltimore. I I mean, isn't this so great? I just love this story. So um, anyway, so they go down to Baltimore. The NAACP had already moved its headquarters to DC. So the buildings were now deserted. So they had to dig down into the ground through uh, a concrete box where Dorothy Parker's uh, urn had been um, buried. And they brought it up, stuck it in this new box, took it back with them to New York, and had a memorial on August 22nd, Dorothy Parker's birthday, um, to bury her in Woodlawn Cemetery near her parents. And uh, on the... On the um, there's a brass plaque on the top of the box 
that uh, with a quote from Dorothy Parker that says, excuse my dust, which is what she had always joked she wanted to put be put on her tombstone. I was going to say, it's got to end with something like quippy. So there yeah. it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Excuse my dust. Excuse Little my did dust. she know it would take that long to land where it was supposed to. <laughs> yeah. So August 22nd, 2020, Dorothy Parker now resides back in the Bronx, back in New York with her family. So oh, isn't that, that a is, journey? Yes. That's a, that's a trip. Quite the journey. I know. <laughs> anyway um so there you go you can go they they're waiting for the tombstone still don't have it um when they get it so that her nieces did not attend the memorial because of covid concerns because they're all elderly but they're hopeful that they can attend um when the tombstone is um actually put up at the gravesite and uh that they'll have you know a larger celebration down the road so anyway stay tuned for um dorothy parker burial yes. stuff set an alert a news alert on your like whatever you get your news on and any dorothy dorothy parker news sure yeah it'd be good well and so kevin fitzpatrick uh runs the facebook group the dorothy parker society um mm. or at least he's part of it i don't know if he runs it actually and uh and so one day ago he posted a photo on the facebook group and he said here's the first photo of the temporary marker at dorothy parker's grave in woodlawn cemetery um, I'll share more photos. I know some fans are visiting this weekend, and then he gives directions for how to find the grave. So, you know, one day ago, this... Anyway, yeah. it's just fascinating. Yeah. That all this was happening. Staying yeah, that's current. crazy timing. Yeah. So, all right. Well, let's uh, let's talk about her... The stories that we read. So, a quick word on her writing. Her short stories, even though they're usually witty, they're also kind of spare and incisive. And a lot of times they're more bittersweet than comic, which is something that surprised me. We can get into this when we talk about what we think about them. Um, And then she's also famous for her short, viciously humorous poems, many highlighting ludicrous aspects of her many largely unsuccessful romantic affairs and others wistfully considering the appeal of suicide. Both of those mm. become important when we get into her stories, particularly Big Blonde. So before we get into the stories themselves, what did you guys think of uh, of these stories when you read them? Um, I was surprised at how, I mean, I had read some Dorothy Parker in college, um, but maybe more of her reviews, right? Again, more. I was more familiar with her as just this kind of like, um biting wit and less like super depressing stuff and I actually found these stories to be really quite sad and and um and just I mean well especially Big Blonde yeah, that yeah, one was really yeah. sad. Big Blonde was really sad mm-hmm. yeah um but even the ones that are funnier like there's this strong undercurrent of just like it's just kind of bleak so um mm-hmm. yeah like I I was I was surprised at the uh at how bleak they they all were to me um and connected with me on kind of like a darker place but i really liked it i mean writing is the writing's great and she's she's so funny and um and you know razor sharp and there's there's so much to appreciate but it was kind of a downer yeah mm-hmm. i felt like it was really she was bitter I, like, I felt like there was a lot of bitterness coming through in mm-hmm. her stories. Mm-hmm. Like, the, that's what surprised me more. I didn't dislike that at all, actually. I liked it. But I thought that it was, um, I, I, I mean, I guess I expected it to be more, like, mm, social commentary as opposed to just, like, this 
commentary, and it was social commentary, I guess, but it was also just... Uh, it, it, it was more you interior know, could, than I was... Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. It was very bitter. You could see a lot of, like, um, personal sort of resentment about things coming through, and Again, I don't. I didn't dislike that. I thought it was interesting to see on paper and like. Yeah, I didn't dislike it either. It was just kind of like, ooh, it's kind of. It, it was a little heavier, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and kind I of mean, surprising. I do think the writing style is unique too. Like in the the what we'll get to it, I'm sure. But like the telephone where she's just like or or, or no no. Yeah, that's the one the one we read, the You're Perfectly Fine, where it's, like, mm-hmm. these dialogues, but, like, you're only seeing one side of it. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's just, um, like, the writing style is just very unique, and I found that appealing, right? Or, they, yeah, the same with the waltz. Like, there's just something. Yeah, it's, you're in, you're inside, it's just, Perfect. like, someone's, like, in, internal monologue, you know what I mean? Yeah. And there's, like, this desperation and sadness to it, um, and... Wit, it's very funny, but it's also just like, oh, this is so, this is a little real. (laughs) Well, yeah, Big Blonde more than the others was sad. The others seemed more bitter to me, but that's, maybe that's where I came. I don't know. Maybe you're just bitter? (laughs) And I'm just bitter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I thought they, I thought they kind of moved through a progression, like, Big Blonde, so I, I went into reading these stories, so that we read four stories. We read Big Blonde, we read You Were Perfectly Fine, uh, we read A Telephone Call, and we read The Waltz. And I felt like there was kind of a, a progression from sadness to comedy, sort of, because Big Blonde was, I thought, very depressing. I yeah. um, And I was surprised by that because I had heard so much about Dorothy Parker's wit that I just thought all of her stories would have this, like, very dry humor, you know, very sarcastic quality to them. And then I got into Big Blonde and I kept waiting for it to get to that point, and it never did. And I was very surprised by that. But then I felt like, you know, you were perfectly fine and a telephone call were a little bit less depressing, but still, you know, kind of not necessarily happy or funny. Kind I of. I they were funny. I just thought they were sad. Well, well, yeah, they had like funny elements to them. But yeah, kind of sad, maybe kind of bitter, like Liz said. And then I got to the waltz, which I just thought was absolutely hilarious and was laughing out loud like the whole way through. Mm-hmm. Um, even though, again, it wasn't like light happy it was kind of a dark happy but it was it was very funny and i thought also very relatable as yeah well all as the asides <laughs> oh yeah um anyway so let's let's start talking about some of these stories let's start with big blonde uh big blonde was her best known short story it was published in the bookman magazine and awarded the o henry award as the best short story of 1929 um so a little bit this is the only story where you can really find any sort of commentary most of the others you can't really find any commentary on but this one, it talks about how um, it's a story that presents a sad and biting view of a woman's life in the 1920s, an era often considered both fun and liberating for women. Big Blonde received a warm, critical, and popular reception and was honored as the best short story of the year in, you know, again, the prestigious O. Henry competition for 1929. A year later, it appeared in a collection of stories by Parker entitled Laments for the Living, which I think is a very depressing title. Um <laughs> And it has since been reprinted in many anthologies and readers. Big Blonde is considered Parker's most significant literary accomplishment and also her most autobiographical piece of writing. For this reason, it has continued to command the fascination and respect of readers. The story is admired for its unconventional narrative structure and its controlled tone. And so, again, kind of on the autobiographical side, 
there are interesting links between the events in the story and those of Parker's life. So both Parker and her fictional counterpart, Mrs. Morse, have brief disillusioning marriages and a string of unsatisfying love affairs, and they both attempted suicide. Um, anyway, so it's a kind of interesting thing. So what did we think? I mean, we talked a little bit about it, but what kind of stood out to you when you guys were reading Big Blonde? What thoughts did you have as you read through this? Um, I was struck at first with like the whole notion of her just being this good sport, right? Mm-hmm. Like she was a yeah. good sport. Everyone thought she was a good sport, and I feel then like all that of a sudden came up she in was a lot of her other stuff too. Yeah, it does. Like this idea that like she put on a good face and people liked her about this, but like, then as don't soon talk as she about was how sad you are, like sad, just, like yeah. oh, you're bringing me down. Why do you have to talk about <laughs> your feelings? <laughs> right. But he's like making her sad. Yeah. And because uh-huh. she's sad, he's not. He's mad at her because she's not a good sport. But, like, his actions are making her sad. Mm-hmm. His distance, like, the, this, about, like, vicious circle, it was... Totally. I, it was so sad. <laughs> that part me, was sad. The marriage part. It made me part. think about... Um, uh, I think this book is on our list, because I'm pretty sure they reference it in The Year in the Life. But in Gone Girl... Yeah, um, uh, there, Which I've read before, which is awesome. But... Um, mm-hmm. There's this kind of famous passage where this character talks about, like, the idea of being the cool girl, right? And, like, the things that women do to make themselves appealing to men, right? To make you, like, the ideal, like, you, how you shape yourself to be, to be what this man wants. And so much of it is just kind of flattering their ego, right? And it kind of, it kind of struck me as, like... You laugh at their jokes. Yeah. You're not laughing at their jokes anymore. as, like, this forerunner Mm -hmm. to that cool girl speech, right? Like, that, like, you do. You have to be the good sport. You have to be, like, everything has to be funny. And, like, oh, my gosh. You know, but, like, as soon as things get real, as soon as you're talking about how you feel, they're, like, "Mm, I just can't do this anymore. You know what I mean? Like, you can't. Anyway, and it's so depressing. I mean, it's so bleak, right? Like, well, and it's so sad because it says you're right. So, like, she's she's sad. She said she never. There's a passage in it said she never needed to drink formerly, but she could sit for most of the night where others were imbibing earnestly and never drop a droop in looks or spirits or be bored. But eventually, as the story goes on, I mean, she is constantly drinking. Like she, in order to feel some, like, she's she just takes to drinking like as a medicine, right? And mm-hmm. it's it's um it wasn't something that she needed to do before and now she does. It's just kind of an interesting like commentary on that, right? That she just was no she just lost her she she commenced drinking alone. She became, right? Uh, Herbie it was only with Herbie that alcohol made her nervous and quick in offense. Alone, it blurred sharp things for her, and she lived in a haze of it. Her life took on a dreamlike quality. Nothing was astonishing. So just, like, this progression of her life as it, like, as she became unhappy and took to drinking alone more, right? And not socially. It was sad. Well, what I think is so interesting about that, too, is that you see this, like, they talk about how when she got married, she became very domestic, right? Like, before she had gotten married, she was this big party girl and went out all the time and loved all the attention from all the men and... Um, going to all these parties and being this, you know, fashion-y model and all this stuff. But as soon as she gets married, she just wants to have this, like, cute little domestic life, right? She wants to have her little house and she or apartment. And she wants to, um, you know, take care of her husband. And she just wants to, like, have this sweet little life. But her husband is like, no, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Yeah, it's just, I feel like it's just really sad that... And 
kind of depressing to think about like here she just wants to have this she wants to move forward in her life she's ready to like leave behind that party element and move into the next phase but the minute she does her husband is like yeah i don't want to deal with you anymore like this is not what i want out of my life and i think there are a lot of women out there who can relate to that mm-hmm. and identify to that and i think that's a very depressing thought and even you know man after man that comes into her life and kind of keeps her as this kind of like kept woman um that's all they want out of her that's all they want and yeah it was a pattern that kept repeating she was a good sport and then once i was really with her not so much Mm -hmm. yep well right like that oh sorry i was gonna say well just like right like as soon as they allow her like you know you get to that place where you can become a real person and not just i guess like a sex object, like, for, to put it bluntly, right? Like, it's just like, oh, this is too much work. Like, or an ego boost. I mean, I think a sex both. object too, yeah. but like both. Like, they're they're to like stroke their ego or whatever it is. Yeah. I don't know, but mm-hmm. like, but it's just so sad. It's like she's just craving to like. I think part of that domesticity was just kind of like to kind of like a real partnership, right? Like. In just, like, that happy, like, content, like contentedness. We're going to be home together and, like, we don't need to go out and go drinking and go party. Like, we can just be home and be ourselves together and, you know, express all parts of ourselves. And they only wanted some parts of herself. And, and it was just so sad. Oh, gosh. And it was like, I no had to keep drove to drinking and, like, suicide. Yeah. It was, and, ugh. Jeez, just... Um, I had to keep reminding myself, this was written, like, this is about the 20s. This is about the 20s. Yeah. Like, how it doesn't seem, like, it could be written today. Just like Gone Girl, right? Like, it could be written today, and it might describe women today, too, right? In different situations, maybe, but not entirely, right? I don't think it's that, I think it's fairly universal. Yeah. Sadly. Yeah. I think, I think so, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think those emotional experiences, yeah, are still very relevant, and and you know what you yeah it just made me so sad that they just didn't all these men didn't want to really know her or be with her they just wanted they just wanted her to be a good time well and and a lot of them were um already married too right mm-hmm. like like ed so you know what they're wanting out of her they don't but even need, her husband uh even, what do you mean? Even her like husband? even her husband was that was what he wanted out of her, right? Oh yeah, yeah, true. But even a lot of the men that she kind of ends up with, they right. already have the wife at home, right, with mm-hmm. the kids and whatever. They so they're they're wanting something very specific out of her, and she just I, and I mean I think it's just really sad. Like it is, it's just a very sad commentary on. Um, I, don't, I mean, I don't yeah, know. Could, like I just go think... down a sure uh, very bitter path with that I know I think it it, 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 yeah I mean I think at its core what like the the (laughs) the underlying theme in a lot of these works actually um at least like the telephone call and you're perfectly fine in this like it's just this woman that wants to be loved and kind of is just being foiled again and again and when you think about that um, in respect to Dorothy Parker, if if she's, you know, pouring herself into this, it just makes you so sad. Like, I, it's just, to me, it was just so sad. And because um, it was just like this, you know, 
I feel like the wit is kind of covering up this just like open aching need to to be loved and accepted and you just have to laugh at it because you're not getting it you know what I mean but she's not sympathetic to the men. She's not being like, oh, look how great they are. I just want them to love me. She is almost like mocking their, like, I don't know what. But I feel like she wasn't very kind to men in her writing, in, in what I read. No, Even no, though she's like placating. I don't think so either. But I don't think that has, that takes away from wanting to be loved. That doesn't mean. Oh, no, I don't think so either. I'm just thinking it doesn't sound like I want to be loved. So here, let me. Like, she abandoned the idea of, like, trying to please them constantly in order to have them love her, right? Like, I don't know. Right, but the idea, that's what's so sad. The idea is, like, if you feel like you have to be, you know, a good sport in order to be loved, and she's rejecting that, as she should, because that's ridiculous. And, like, yeah, there's going to be some bitterness that comes through there, because mm-hmm. how sad yeah. is that, right? Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah. Your, your whole self, and they're just kind of like, oh, stop being such a drag. Like, or I like this one where Herbie's like, well, I don't like it. It's just kind of gross. But he's just like, um, he would be immediately enraged. All right, crab, 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 crab. That was all she ever did. What a lousy sport she was. There'd be scenes, and one of the other of them would rise and stalk out in fury. Like, the whole idea that she's just constantly, like, this downer for him. <laughs> she just keeps getting mad (laughs) like Like, how dare she i don't know it's complicated i think it's i think it's really interesting and really sad and and there's you know lots there's so many layers there of bitterness of Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. of remove just to kind of like you know that's where the alcohol maybe comes in to like to kind of numb your pain from and to kind of get you through your days sort of a thing because what you really want is like she because like when said when she was married and she was trying to have this domestic happy life that she didn't want to drink and it was like you know these these circumstances drove her to it and and that was the only way she could kind of navigate the the pain of it all yeah, yeah. well um on that note i want to talk about the, a telephone call because I think it, this kind of... Also painful. Yeah, this <laughs> so kind of transitions painful. nicely into a telephone call, which mm-hmm. I thought was maybe the most relatable story of all of them that we read. Um, oh, yeah. The walls. The <laughs> like walls that just sounds like something, yep. something someone wrote, I read on Twitter yesterday <laughs> about waiting for a guy to text back. You know what I mean? Good grief. Yeah. And uh, so a telephone call is about a, a woman who's waiting for a man to call. And... Um, that's literally all it is. She's just sitting there waiting for him to call. And it's all about the thoughts that are swirling around in her head about why he hasn't called and whether or not she should call him and how long she needs to wait and ways she's trying to distract herself from thinking about the It's like the a fact conversation with called. God. <laughs> like, please let him call God. Yeah, the please. prayer. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. It, oh, the prayer. The prayer is, is... Well, she has several prayers, but it's, um, mm-hmm. it's really... It, 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 anyway, it's just... So relatable. There are a couple of um, sections here that I just kind of wanted to read because I thought, okay, um, so she says, this is the last time I'll look at the clock. I will not look at it again. It's 10 minutes past seven. He said he would telephone at five o'clock. I'll call you at five, darling. I think that's where he said darling. I'm almost sure he said it there. I know he (laughs) called me darling twice. And the other time was when he said goodbye. Goodbye, darling. He was busy and he can't say much in the office, but he called me darling twice. He couldn't have minded me my calling him up. 
I know you shouldn't keep telephoning them. I know they don't like that. When you do that, they know you are thinking about them and wanting them, and that makes them hate you. But I hadn't talked to him in three days. Not in three days. And all I did was ask him how he was. It was just the way anybody <laughs> might have called him up. He couldn't have minded that. He couldn't have thought I was bothering him. No, of course you're not, he said. And he said he'd telephone me. He didn't have to say that. I didn't ask him to. Truly, I didn't. I'm sure I... I'm sure I didn't. I don't think he would say he'd telephone me and then just never do it. Please don't let him do that, God. Please don't. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So funny. Or even going on, like, I think he must still like me a little. He couldn't have called me darling twice today if he didn't still like me a little. It isn't all gone if he still likes me a little, even if it's only a little, little bit. You see, God, if, if you would just let him telephone me, I wouldn't have to ask you anything more. I would be sweet to him. I would be gay. I would be just the way I used to be. And then he would love me again. See? <laughs> oh, but what about this? Hold on, hold on. So then there's one where she's, like, decided to count. Yeah, the like, counting. Oh, the counting. The counting. She's going to count to 500 by 5. He hasn't called her by then. I will know God isn't going to help me ever again. <laughs> that will be the sign. So then they count, and then she says... Um, I knew it was bad. All right, God, send me to hell. You think you're frightening me with your hell, don't you? Don't you think your hell is worse than mine? So, like, this is hell for her. She says, I mustn't. I mustn't do this. Suppose he has a, he's just a little late calling me up. That's nothing to get hysterical about. Maybe he isn't going to call. Maybe he's coming straight up here without telephoning. He'll be cross if he sees up and crying. They don't like you to cry. He doesn't cry. I wish to God I could make him cry. I wish I could make him cry and tread the floor and feel his heart heavy and big and festering in him. I wish I could hurt him like hell. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't wish that about me. I don't think he even knows how he makes me feel. I wish he could know without my telling him. <laughs> but then I like the moments of, you know, when, when she's like, I must stop this. I mustn't be this way. Look, suppose a young man says he'll call a girl up and then something happens and he doesn't. That isn't so terrible, is it? Why it's going on all over the world right this minute? Oh, what do I care what's going on all over the world? Why can't he, that telephone ring? Why can't it? Why can't it? Couldn't you ring? Ah, oh, please, couldn't you? You damned ugly, shiny thing. It wouldn't hurt you to ring, would it? Oh, that would hurt you. Damn you, I'll pull your filthy roots out of the wall. I'll smash your <laughs> smug black face in little bits. Damn you to hell. Like, the phone. The phone. <laughs> Just that progression of like, wait, why am I worrying about this? This is a stupid thing to be worrying about. And then she Please keeps call. Yeah. yeah. Like, I'm not going to be hysterical about this. Okay, I'm going to count now. <laughs> I'm going to count backwards by fives from 500. <laughs> I... I mean, you can feel her pain. You can feel her pain there. It's so relatable. It's like, so relatable. Mm-hmm. Just the desperation and the, like, you know you, you like, you're hating yourself for feeling this way because you know it's so stupid, but you still are just like, Ugh. Anyway, it's very relatable. Mm-hmm. So yes. funny. I mean, it's, it's sad, but it's kind of funny. Oh, it's right? totally funny. Don't you, like, I read it and I laugh, but then I'm also like, Oh. <laughs> well, it's very self-deprecating, right? Like, yeah. what girl hasn't been there before? Well, that's the thing. It's like, you see yourself uh-huh. in it, and you're just like, this hurts. This one's dangerous. Well, this whole, there's this whole notion of pride in there. Like, it's like a blow to her pride. And I feel like that's kind of an important thing, too. Like, it's not like him just rejecting you, too. It's like maintaining your pride through the whole thing. Like, I have to be, I, have to be, I want to be dignified in this. I don't want to lose it. Mm-hmm. But, like... It's hard to maintain that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just the whole uh, conversation in your head is not dignified, and you know it, and you're kicking no. yourself. <laughs> and that conversation is almost exclusively happening in your own head. Sometimes, oh, yeah. if you're brave enough, you'll talk to someone else about it. But um, it's really just <laughs> happening in your own head. Yeah. 
for and that's your pride. You don't want to like. Yeah. So yeah. I waited all night for this guy to call me, and <laughs> I mean also um, a plot point in Gilmore Girls. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, gosh. I do think that's just something that, like, every girl has experienced in one form or another. And so it's so just, like, you read it and you're laughing, but you're also like, oh, gosh, this feeling is the worst and you just know it so well. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of like reading. um, It's kind of like reading He's Just Not That Into You, which is on the list. I know. I never actually read that book. but Oh, really? (laughs) We'll have some fun when we get to that. That's Mm going to be a painful (laughs) conversation in terms of self-reflection and... Um, you know, honest dialogue <laughs> with ourselves, but I guess yeah, or cultural thoughts. significance. <laughs> I, I have thoughts about that. We'll save them for, you know, twenty twenty four. Whenever we get to that, but <laughs> when we get to the H's, <laughs> maybe by then we'll be like, so it worked. <laughs> Here we are. Okay, all um, right. Um, so let's let's move on. Let's talk about you were perfectly fine. Um, this one, I don't know how I felt about this one. I kind of read it and I was like, okay. And then I kind of moved on. So I thought it was funny. I thought it was funny. The narration was funny, like how the story played out, and like it's kind of like he can't remember what he's doing. No, you were fine, except <laughs> that one time when you did that. But like it was fine. No one really cared, but it was fine. Like how we just have to like play. Well, like, it's just it is funny in the sense of like it's like he, you know this thing that happened and he doesn't remember and just kind of being. Um, I just kind of like the how it builds and cascades of like it's like it's like this person woke up and something happened the night before and he doesn't remember and this woman um is <laughs> telling him the story telling basically. him what happened the night before and uh and he's just like feeling this dread about like what mm-hmm. happened and she's like it's great see and like anyway it's but like, like you were fine. Well, everyone in the restaurant wasn't he's like whatever well, noticed me no they barely noticed when you were yelling throughout the whole restaurant <laughs> no the waiter was fine how rude you were it was fine i mean there was only a little bit of this like it was just the narration told the story in such a you unique way i just thought it was funny <laughs> um, but it also sorry but it also seemed um like <laughs> like almost kind of like she was taking advantage of him not seemed she was taking advantage of him right where he's she's like you said such lovely lovely things she said and i'd never known all the time how you'd been feeling about me and i'd never dared to let you see how i felt about you and then last night oh peter dear i think that taxi ride was the most important thing that ever happened to us in our lives <laughs> he has no idea what happened <laughs> yeah it's funny <laughs> Uh-huh. But also, why would she like Peter? It sounded like he was kind of an a-hole. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like she's trying to trap him. It's so funny. <gasps> oh, gosh. I was trying to keep it non-explicit. <laughs> well, and he, like, and it's so funny how as he starts to get this sense of where she's going with this, he kind of tries to backpedal, you know, mm-hmm. and, 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 uh. She says, we're going to be so happy. Oh, I just want to tell everybody, but I don't, but I don't know. I think maybe it would be sweeter to keep it all to ourselves. And he said, I think it would be. (laughs) And she says, isn't it lovely? Yes, he said, great. Lovely, she said. Look here, he said, do you mind if I have a drink? I mean, just medicinally, you know, I'm off the stuff for life. So, so help me. But I think I feel a collapse coming on. Oh, I think it would do you good, she said. You poor boy. It's a shame you feel so awful. I'll go make you a whiskey and soda. Honestly, he said, I don't see how you could ever want to speak to me again after I made such a fool of myself last night. I think I'd better go join a monastery in Tibet. (laughs) 
You crazy idiot, she said. As if I could ever let you go away now. Stop talking like that. You were perfectly fine. <laughs> and then she jumps up and kisses him and runs out of the room. I just, uh, and he, he's just sitting there and he says, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, mm-hmm. but like to me again, that is—it's funny. It's very funny, but it's also really sad. Like, because Liz, you're right. He is an a-hole, and she's like, "Oh my gosh, this is my chance!" Like, <laughs> n- n- now I can, now I can finally get him. Like, and he doesn't. Anyway. Right, but you can't—you can't really tell him. Well, yeah, you were out of control. Like, mm-hmm. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't like where you were with that. But you have to be—I mean, probably not in those same circumstances. But like, for sure, we do that to people, right? Like, no, it's fine. No, you like. Tell them what they want to hear a little bit, right? Like, I, I've done it. Not similar experience to that one, but I've done it. I know I have. Yeah. Sure, but it's like, I again, I feel like her, and, and me, I don't know, I don't know what this says about me, but like, I, to me, it was less about like her excusing like his boorish drunkenness than like her, like, you know, like, how do I articulate this? Like, you know, something happened and... Using his drunkenness as, like, a way to, like, secure him? Yeah, a little bit, right? Like, she's so desperate mm-hmm. to have him and to have that security mm-hmm. that it's, like, I'm going to ignore whatever, and it's about, like, oh, I'm so in love, I'm so happy, it was so romantic, and, like, <laughs> it's really just really, really sad, and, like, he's just kind of, like, quietly panicking, and she's, you know, celebrating, and it's just sad, anyway. Yeah. But I did think it was... I mean, it was kind of funny. Um, Okay, well, let's talk about the last one, the waltz. This one, I was laughing, like, the whole way through this. So the waltz is about a a girl who gets asked to dance, but she doesn't want to dance with the guy who's asked her to dance. So it's it's a combination of her verbal comments and responses to the guy and her inner monologue as she's just, like, hating this, this whole situation. And yeah, um, just like what she says and what she thinks. Yeah, and so um, it's very funny. Again, I, I, a I very love, universally female experience. It, very universal. So there's, <laughs> I loved. Uh, so she says, "What can you say when a man asks you to dance with him?" I most certainly will not dance with you. I'll see you in hell first. Why, thank you. I'd like to awfully, but I'm having labor pains. Oh, yes, do. Let's dance together. It's so nice to meet a man who isn't a scaredy cat about catching my berry berry. No, there was nothing for me to do but say I'd adore to. Well, we might as well get it over with. All right, cannonball, let's run out on the field. You won the toss, you can lead. And uh, anyway, and so she, and then he's like dancing the wrong, at the wrong pace. And she says, I'm so glad I brought it to his attention that this is a waltz they're playing. Heaven knows what might have happened if he had thought it was something fast. We'd have blown the sides right out of the building. Why does he always want to be somewhere that he isn't? Why can't we stay in one place just long enough to get acclimated? Um... It's this constant rush, rush, rush that's the curse of American life. That's the reason we're all of us so... Ow! For God's sake, don't kick, you idiot! This is only second down. Ow! Oh, my shin! My poor, poor shin that I've had ever since I was a little girl. And then she says out loud, she's like, Oh, no, no, no. Goodness, no. It didn't hurt the least little bit. And anyway, it was my fault. Really, it was. Truly. My fault. Uh Well, you're just being sweet to say that. It really was all my fault. And then she says, I wonder what I'd better do, kill him this instant with my naked hands or wait and let him drop in his traces. Maybe it's best not to make a scene. Um, Anyway, and she just kind of goes on and, uh, you know, she said, I've led no cloistered life. I've known dancing partners who have spoiled my slippers and torn my dress. But when it comes to kicking, I am outraged womanhood. And anyway, it just, uh, 
Oh, gosh, I love it. She talks about how long they've been dancing. And, uh, you know, she says, um, <clears throat> she talks about how, like, oh, yeah, and here I've been locked in his noxious embrace for the 35 years this waltz has lasted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was so funny. I mean, it was, it was just a lark, right? Like It captured uh, a very unique moment of time when yes. you have to dance to someone you don't want to uh-huh. how you're really feeling <clears throat> well it's not just dancing with someone you don't want to dance with it's dancing with someone you don't want to dance with who isn't good at dancing <laughs> and so like there's nothing yeah. redemptive about the experience <laughs> oh it's so true that's such a good point um oh and then you know but then the uh, the external conversation of no this is great oh yeah let's dance another please i'd love to i would love nothing more than dancing oh, with you good. all night <laughs> yeah well and how he has no idea right like there that wouldn't even occur to him to think that she's thinking any of this right right mm-hmm. um anyway all right well those are the four stories there are others many many more also poetry book reviews um it's all very fun. So we will leave the rest of it up to you to read. Read some Dorothy Parkham. It's Parker. worth your time. It's definitely mm-hmm. worth your time. It is definitely worth your time. It's a and mood. <laughs> yeah, and she shows up in a lot of places. Like, she has a much larger cultural footprint than I think a lot of people realize. Yeah. And um, to that extent, let's talk about where she shows up in pop culture. So there... Besides Gilmore Girls. <laughs> besides Gilmore Girls, right. My personal that's... favorite is the movie version of Thoroughly Modern Millie. I know, I thought of that too, but there's, uh, my personal favorite is actually the Prince song, so go on. Okay, fine. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, yeah, so she, gosh, I mean, she shows up. What's interesting is that a lot of people have written stories that include her as a character, because yeah. she's just such a fun character. Like, she was so witty Big. and, you know, um, sarcastic just in general that she's a great character to add into a story. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of plays and other stories that are kind of, that include characters that are based on her or that include her as a character directly. So some of those include, um, you know, Lily Malone, the character Lily Malone in Philip Berry's Hotel Universe from 1932, uh, the character Mary Hilliard in George Oppenheimer's Here Today, 1932, Paula Wharton in Gordon's 1944 play Over 21, and Julia Glenn in the Kaufman Moss Hart collaboration, Merrily We Roll Along, from 1934. Um, so there's a bunch from her time. She's also mentioned in the in- original introductory lyrics in Cole Porter's song, Just One of Those Things, from the 1935 Broadway musical Jubilee, uh, which that song later was then sung by Bing Crosby and became a big hit. Um, she's featured as a character in the novel The Dorothy Parker Murder Case by George Baxt in a series of Algonquin Roundtable Mysteries by J.J. Murphy, which is so great. Um, she's also in Ellen Meister's novel Farewell, Dorothy Parker. She's the main character in Love for Miss Dottie, which is a short story by Larry Mayer. Um, let's see. She's been portrayed on film and in television by several different actresses in several different movies. Um, in fact, one of those actresses, Bebe uh, Newworth, was nominated for an Emmy Award for her performance and portrayal of Dorothy Parker. That's good casting. I can see that. Uh-huh. And uh, Jennifer Jason Lee also played her and got a Golden Globe nomination for her portrayal of Dorothy 
Dorothy that Parker. one I don't see as much. <laughs> but, okay. But, you know, there it is. Um, let's see, some other things. So in 1992, the U.S. Postal Service designated a commemorative stamp of Dorothy Parker on her uh, for her 99th birthday. Well, yeah, 99th birthday. Um, I like that they did it for 99, didn't wait for 100. I know, right? I know. Maybe it didn't fit the calendar. <laughs> um, there are... Uh, a whole bunch of, well, Melissa McCarthy actually, so the movie Can You Ever Forgive Me, uh, Melissa McCarthy plays a, a woman who forged yeah, historical letters. Don Powell. Mm-hmm. What? Um, we talked about, we talked about this movie with Don Powell because she also did some yeah. Don Powell forgeries. Yeah. Well, yep. It's a real, it's a true story. Um, what's her name mm-hmm. again? Israel, it's like Israel. Lee, 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 Lee Israel. Yeah. 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 And anyway, so yeah, so Dorothy Parker was one of the people who she was forging letters from. And, uh, anyway, okay, and then as far as, um, well, and then in, uh, let's see, in RuPaul's Drag Race, this is so great, one of the characters, uh, or one of the contestants on RuPaul's Drag Race, Ms. Cracker, portrayed Dorothy Parker, and, um, that's awesome. <laughs> I know, I'm trying to remember, oh yeah, that's, this was in 2018. Yeah, so she portrayed Parker in the celebrity impersonation game show episode of season 10 of RuPaul's Drag Race. I love it. Which is pretty great. So, um, anyway, okay, then as far as, uh, music goes, so there, there are some songs out there. Let's do a short clip of the Prince song, Liz, since you mentioned that. Yeah, it's a good one. I mean, it's not his best one, but it's a good one. Um, it's the best Prince song about Dorothy Parker. How about that? Sure, sure. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's not like it isn't like the early modern Millie where they throw soy sauce. Where on no, her no, 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 no. So, so it's like so Millie spills wine on her and then tries to clean it up with soy sauce. It's great. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and they're worried. Yep, that's that. That's I great. love that movie so much. <laughs> um, all right, so here is the Ballad of Dorothy Parker, which is a song written by Prince. Dorothy was a waitress on the promenade. She worked the night shift. Dishwater blonde, tall and fine. She got a lot of chips. Well, earlier, I've been talking stuff in a violent room. Fighting with lovers past. I needed someone with a quicker whip than mine. All right, so there we go. It's pretty funky. Except he's probably not describing her. She was like four <laughs> <laughs> eleven. So what, I, I think that there's some like weird things going on in that those lyrics, but that's okay. <laughs> it's funky, yeah. funky, funky Prince. All right, funky Prince. That's right. There's also a um, a collection of songs called Hate Songs by Marcus uh, Paus. And it's like operatic songs that are set to text from Dorothy Parker. And, uh, you know, like the first one is called Men. And then the third one is called Frustration. Like, it's really kind of funny. It's hard to kind of hard to understand the lyrics. But um, that's apparently one of the better known like musical collaborations using her text. Um, Like her direct, you know, her text is the lyrics for the, the music. But anyway... Lots of stuff out there on Dorothy Parker. There's no shortage of Dorothy Parker um, influence in our pop culture today. 
So if you find other things about Dorothy Parker, please let us know, and we will happily share them on the show. Yeah, and episodes. like we would love to hear what your favorite Dorothy Parker stories are. There, she has just her body of work is so big, and obviously we only touched on a little bit of it. So we would love to hear what you guys like too. Yeah. Um, okay, so now now we're going to move into our final segment, our favorite, which is what we are inspired to do now that we have finished reading Dorothy Parker. Liz, let's start with you. Um, I want to read her reviews, her constant reader reviews, or find that book. Her book reviews, I, I just think she has a kind of funny turn of phrase that if she can apply it to literature, which is also something I love, as opposed to just like being bitter about men or bit, m- failed marriages, but also just applying it to books, I would, I want to try that out. Give that a whirl, <laughs> right? <laughs> so um, I think she would be a fun, an interesting. Like if I were, if she were writing reviews now, I would tune in, right? I'd want to know what she has to think about books that she's reading now. So I guess I'll read about her reviews from books in the past. Good times. I think that's a good one. She would have made a really fun contribution to Pop Culture Happy Hour. <laughs> <laughs> yes, or Twitter. I would follow or her Twitter. on Twitter for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, Sarah. What about you? I mean, I guess I'm inspired to be more of a good sport. <laughs> no. That's kind of depressing. <laughs> Don't do it, Sarah. Don't go that route, Sarah. <laughs> you be you. Uh-huh. That's the, the opposite. Don't worry about being a good sport. Yeah, not that? the lesson that we're supposed to be learning. <laughs> Weird. Yeah. I don't know. I like that's. I didn't, I didn't come away with it being like, wow, like, I want to write mean essays about stuff I see, or, like, (laughs) I just, uh, you know, but it did make me think, you know, about that element of, obviously, I want to be myself, and if a guy can't deal with the fact that you're not a good sport, then, you know, good riddance, but it's still, it just was thought-provoking in that sense. Like, next time you laugh at a guy's joke that isn't funny, (laughs) think about that. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, oh, that's so funny. Yeah, so yeah next funny. time I hear either of you fake laugh, I'm going to call you a good sport. <laughs> that's fair enough. That's what I'm inspired to do. No, okay, that's okay. not what I'm inspired well, to no. do. Well, no. Like, thanks for being a good sport. Fake, fake, fake. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I was kind of on the train that Liz was on. I wanted to read more, especially her poems. I think her poems are, like, the quotes that you hear from Dorothy Parker, I think a lot of them come out of her poetry more than her short stories and um just you know little clips of what she says here and there so i was kind of inspired to read more like a little a broader slice of her work just to get a better sense so that i can catch those references when they do come up um because i know they're out there and i know they pop up all over the place but you know you can't catch them if you don't know them so that's kind of i want to be able to see something and say, oh yeah, that's reminiscent of Dorothy Parker, or that comes from Dorothy Parker, and just have a better appreciation for that. So that's kind of what I'm inspired to do. I like it. Yeah. So, um, okay, well, how much have you read of Dorothy Parker's works? What do you think? Um, Have you read her poems or her book reviews or other short stories that we didn't read here today? Um, Come start a conversation with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Reading with Rory, or find us on our website at readingwithrory.com. You can also follow us on Spotify for playlists inspired by the books we read, like the Prince song and the <laughs> other random hate songs and other or things. Or Thoroughly that we Modern find. Millie. Thoroughly Modern Millie. Or Thoroughly Modern Millie, that's right. 
Um, also, don't forget to leave us a review. We really like knowing how we're doing, and it really does help others find us. So if you haven't yet, now's the time to go in and leave us a review on whatever um, app you use to listen to your podcast. Next time on Reading with Rory, we'll be discussing A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. So we can't wait. We hope you'll join us. Thank you for listening and reading along with us, and we'll catch you next time.